Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sample Size, the only news podcast that cares about science. I'm your host, Samantha Spears. And I'm your other host, Wildcard Cameron. Hi, Sam. Hi. So what is the news this week? This week, we're covering a topic I love a lot, and it is election polling. Uh, yeah. Because guess what? There is a presidential election coming up in the U.S. Did you know that? Yes, (laughs) everyone knows that. People who want literally nothing to do with America, people who've lived on the farthest, most remote corners of this planet, know that there is an election (laughs) this year. More importantly, that there's an election that's going to resolve in, what, three weeks? Two weeks. Three weeks? Two weeks. Oh, no. Yeah, two weeks. (gasps) Always coming up. Yes, everyone go out and vote if you haven't voted already. Yes. People that are in the U.S., obviously those who aren't. If you live you outside the U.S., vote. harass people in the U.S. If you are someone who can cannot vote, harass someone who can vote. Yes. Make, <laughs> if you already voted, like we have, go find someone who hasn't voted and make sure they vote. I don't care who you vote for, just vote. Participate in the democratic process. Yes. All right. So as I mentioned, this episode, it's going to focus on election polling. Specifically, I'm going to focus on the presidential race. That is the race between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. All right. I'm excited to hear this. So we're going to be talking about like how they figure out how to tell us, oh, Biden's doing well. Oh, Trump is doing well. One of those hurt more to say than the other. (laughs) Yeah, no, but exactly. That's what polls are. It's determining who the public will vote for in November. That's the whole point of it. Okay, but I think this also begs the question of like, you know, how do they get the polls? And also we kind of had a problem with polls last time with air quotes in like 2016. So (laughs) I'm guessing you're going to be talking about that. I am going to be talking about that. I didn't lead you into that at all. No, that was that was a great segue. It was very organic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yes. So currently Biden has a pretty sizable lead over Trump in the national polls. And he's also ahead in some swing states. But as you mentioned, in 2016, Hillary was predicted to have a lead over Trump pretty much up until Election Day. And then, you know, obviously that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Trump won the election, not Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think that, oh, the 2016 polls were actually really wrong. And, oh, no, they misled us or something. So that's really what I'm going to be talking about is like, were those polls actually misleading? What are polls? And Also, I want to go into this hidden Trump supporter effect. All right. Very cool. I have a lot of thoughts about that last one. We'll get there. We'll get there. Did you want to start with what are polls so that when I'm going into your explanations, I have some concept of what we're going to be talking about? (laughs) Yes. Let me just briefly cover what are election polls. So as I said, polling specifically for the presidential election. It's all about determining who the public will vote for in November. Will they be voting for Joe Biden or will they be voting for Donald Trump? And I also want to say, as a statistician who specializes in surveys, election polling can be pretty confusing. So listeners, if you're lost and confused when reading about polling stuff, trust me, you're not alone. So let me just give a general description of what goes on. Really, it's all a survey. What a poll does is you take a sample of people in your population. You then give them a survey. This is asking about the presidential race. So you're going to ask them a question of who do you think you're voting for in November? Who are you planning to vote for in November? And then also probably asking them some demographic questions to get that information. So then from that information, you're able to create an estimate and say, oh, this candidate has this much percentage of support, this candidate has this much percentage of support. And you can estimate and say, oh, the public is 
favoring this candidate over this candidate at this current moment. So it sounds like in order to get an accurate measure, you're going to need a good sample size. Oh, we did it. We brought it back. We made the show about science again. Roll roll sample size. Roll sample size. (laughs) But no, that's, I think, getting to what you're talking about. It's very important that you have adequate numbers and know how to interpret those numbers to be able to extrapolate that to the entire country. Yeah. Also, the industry gold standard, I'm using quotes, is just what the researchers considered is like the best way to do this is to do it by phone calls and to call up a sample of people and have them answer questions over the phone. But because of how phone numbers are just changing over the decades, Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't have landlines anymore. More people have cell phones. And then there's just kind of people having other ways to communicate, such as like through text or through social media, you know, through the Internet in general. Because of that, there's now just a lot of other modes going on that people use. So they'll have like Internet surveys or they'll have people texting things or they'll do a combination of both and then combine those results. Yeah, my favorite are the Twitter polls where it's always one candidate and then like your favorite cereal or something. It's always like two (laughs) things that never go together. (laughs) Yeah, Twitter polls aren't the most accurate. And a reason why I'm speaking kind of vaguely about election polls is because it's not really the math part that makes it all confusing. Polling is so widespread and secretive, it can be hard to keep up. A lot of news agencies have their own polls. Polling firms have their own polls. Candidates have their own people conducting polls. There's a lot of polls out there. I actually have a great 538 article linked that has collected all of the polls for the 2020 election. And trust me, there is a bunch of them. And because there are so many, polling people tend to want to keep the details secret, like details about who the participants are, the weighting scheme they use, how they did, like calculate the estimates, stuff like that. Yeah, there's 37 million polls in Poland alone. Oh, my God. I did it. Oh, I was, no. I was, I was sitting on that joke for so long. Oh, uh, oh that uh. hurt. That hurt me. <laughs> I was just wounded. Oh. <laughs> I thought you were going to actually give me the number of, like, election polls out there. I have no. no. Con- that's a problem is there are literally so many of them, and they're constantly shifting and changing based on demographics, right? Like, you can have one that's just people of a certain minority group. And people of a certain minority group who are also college graduates. And then people of that minority group who are college graduates and also car owners. Oh, my goodness. Well, and actually for election polls, you try to have a representative sample. You try to have a group of people that looks like the population you're trying to measure. But kind of what you're hinting at is that there are even different types of polls. There are the national election ones. There are ones that are just for specific states. You can even get more local into polls that are for local candidates. And so that's just like a city or a county. Okay. This is very granular. Yeah. So you got to kind of think of what this poll's audience is. Who are they at? And this is just for the presidential election. Not even think about all the other smaller races that we almost never pay attention to because CNN can't be bothered. (laughs) Yes. And so because of all of these mini details, I thought instead of focusing on the little details, it'll actually be better to focus on how we use the polls and how you should interpret them. And the way to focus on that is really just going back to what happened in 2016 and looking at how that applies to this 2020 election. Awesome. Because I remember back in 2016 and also now, polls are weird to me because I don't care. Like, I f- <laughs> Okay. I feel like a lot of people have already made up their mind about who they're going to vote for. 
And also because of how much noise it makes and the fact that the last election, quote unquote, got it wrong, I don't see that information gleam any insight from it. So, yeah, I really hope with the 2016 discussion, you're going to help me fill in those gaps. Yes, hopefully so. So let's just get right into it. Get into this. All right. So most probably remember that Hillary Clinton was in the lead of most polls coming up to Election Day. But in the end, Donald Trump won the election. And because of this, a lot of people this election are wary of polls and don't believe them. So how bad were the polls actually in 2016? I'm going to guess they were very bad. No, they were not. did you even ask me that? I just told you how little I know about this. (laughs) (laughs) To put you on the spot. Yes, I don't like being put on the spot. All right. (laughs) To make this a contrast. Were they very good? They were not that bad. That's my best answer. The American Association of Public Opinion Research, or APOR, they actually published a great report where they evaluated what happened in 2016. Wait, APOR is an acronym? Yes. I did not know that. I just like the Cato Institute, like they have all these crazy names. I don't know what any I don't know if they're acronyms or someone's last name anymore. Yes. APOR is an acronym. Okay. (laughs) All right. And I'm just going to go over a little bit of what they found. So first, why I say the polls weren't actually that bad. The national polls were actually correct for the most part. They showed that Clinton had a three percentage point lead coming into the election, and she ended up winning the popular vote by two percentage points. So the polls that represented the popular vote were mostly accurate, is what you're saying? Yes, exactly. And this kind of goes into the difference between a national poll and a state level poll. Okay. Because in the presidential election, we don't elect candidates by the popular vote. We elect candidates by electoral college. And depending upon what states they win, determine who actually wins the overall election. Yeah. And I I hate to plug another podcast right now, but Throughline from NPR is doing an exceptional job of why the electoral college is hot garbage. So (laughs) if anyone wants a little more context on how we got the electoral college and why it's bad, I'm just going to let them do that for us. You're welcome. Yes, that's a good plug. Now, understanding the difference between the state and national polls is important because the popular vote is the national poll and the state polls help determine who's going to win the electoral votes for that state is what you just said? Yes, correct. All right. I'm, I'm following. Yeah. All right. Good. Yeah. So just summary, in 2016, the national polls did pretty good determining what the national vote would be. Now, the state level polls in some swing states were actually off. They showed a tight race between Clinton and Trump where Clinton had a narrow lead and the polls on average had Trump about one state behind Clinton in securing the win. But Trump support was particularly underestimated in the upper Midwest. And that's because a lot of those states were generally blue up until the 2016 election where they switched to being red states. And another important thing is that a lot of the state polls, they were still within the margin of error. So because the race was so tight, that's really why you had a flip-flopping of either Clinton winning or Trump winning a state. Yeah, and just a little primer for anyone who's not super aware of the Electoral College and Electoral Votes. The number of electoral votes a state gets is the number of senators, which is always two per state, plus the number of members of the House of Representatives. And this is wacky to think about with the flip-flopping of states because every time a state flips, especially a state with technically a smaller population like you might see in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. means that those extra two senatorial votes are going to swing over along with all the House of Representatives. So in a way, you can get less people to vote for you and get more proportional vote. 
Yes. I feel like you're just saying why the electoral college system is bad. I am, but I'm also trying to say why a state flip-flopping can actually be a huge deal because you're not trying to get millions of votes. Now you're weirdly just trying to get six. You're just trying to get a handful of electoral votes. Yeah. And that's that's kind of how the electoral system works in general, mm-hmm. is that because of this system, we have swing states. We have states that are kind of on the edge of being Democrat or Republican controlled. So the candidates then go to those states and really focus on campaigning in those states and not really campaigning that much in the other states because whether they win the overall election is determined by those states, not really the other states that are a secure win for them. Yeah. And this is, again, where I want to stop and just say, go listen to that through line stuff. Go listen. There's so many podcasts <laughs> that do a great job, YouTube videos, anything that break down why the Electoral College is a broken system and how there's actually the interstate compact that people are trying to create to say, like, we will just give all of our our electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote of the country to help even this out because I don't want to get into the electoral college anymore. Yes. <laughs> because the important thing here is understanding that the way we predicted these can send false signals to the population, which then go into voting. And in many ways, I think that's actually more important than how those final votes come down. Yeah, a bit. And we'll get to that. Something else I do want to bring up is that I mentioned how the state polls, most of them were within their margin of error. I realize a lot of people probably don't know what that term means. I don't. All right. So I could give you the actual mathematical definition of what that means. That's not useful. Let me just give you the layman's version. Whenever you have an estimate from a survey, there's some kind of variance associated with it. Think of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. There's some wiggle room around that estimate of what it could actually be. And that's because a survey, you're taking a sample and based on the responses of that sample, you're estimating what the actual population value is. Yeah. Let me see if I can break this down a little more for you. So let's say I want to know how many people in the great state of Virginia are going to buy a car. I can't ask everyone in the great state of Virginia, but I can ask a pretty diverse cross section of people in Virginia who's going to buy a car. And based on that, I can extrapolate their answers out to the whole population of Virginia. But because I haven't been able to ask all the people in Virginia, there's going to be variants. Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's what happens in the state polls. And so just look into it. Whenever you see someone quote a poll and say a figure, there usually there's a graph associated with it. And usually in very faint font, you will see what the like error is around it. And it'll usually be like, oh, plus or minus this many percentage points or something. So that'll give you a good gauge of like what the range around that value is. After explaining that, let me just go into some of the reasons why the Trump support was underestimated in those Midwest states. Let's go. One big reason was actually last minute decisions by voters. So about 13 percent of voters in Wisconsin, Florida, and Pennsylvania decided who to vote for in the last week. And of those, a lot ended up voting for Trump. And there are various reasons why. In the last week of elections, there were actually a lot of scandals and reports that came up revolving around Hillary Clinton. So that could have definitely shifted sentiment toward the Trump end. The October surprise. Yes. Is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But okay. (laughs) (laughs) And you've also mentioned how polls can sometimes affect what people end up voting for. Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, actually, I've seen this more for voter turnout, where because enough people think it's a sure thing that someone's going to win, they don't 
don't think they need to go out and vote for that person. Meaning that because it is a popularity contest and whoever gets the most votes wins, if enough people don't turn out for the one candidate, even though everyone likes them more, the other candidate can win. And I think that comes back to how expectations of polling are very important to understanding whether or not these graphs actually mean anything in terms of actual voter turnout. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned that because people have also looked into if there was really like complacent voting going around in the 2016 election. And as far as people have been able to determine, that wasn't really the case that was happening. Really? Yeah, like voter turnout was pretty high still. It's interesting to hear considering how much I've always heard about voter suppression tactics. And that is a very real problem. But this is not the same thing. This is just trying to figure out who did and didn't vote. And based on what we can tell, everyone who said they voted did vote. Yes, pretty much. And let me bring up now another reason why Trump support was underestimated. A lot of the state polls actually did not adjust their results for education. And that mattered because in 2016, there was a strong correlation between education and who someone voted for, where those with a higher education tended to vote for Clinton. Also important to know about surveys, people with higher education tend to participate in surveys more. So by not adjusting for education, you now had polls that had an overabundance of people with college degrees. So let me see if I got this straight. You're saying that when they were doing the polling, they probably polled a bunch of people who did have college degrees and didn't have college degrees. And they got a lot more responses from people who participated with college degrees. So when they extrapolated that to the population, even though a large chunk of the population didn't have college education, which was very important in determining how someone voted, they still interpreted the results as saying, all right, well, this poll without adjusting for education is probably applicable to the general public. And what they found was, well, no, you didn't account for the fact that the people who want to vote for Trump because they were voting along education lines and a lot of people in the state do not have a college education. All your results were off because of that dichotomy. Yeah, that's a great summary. So when you're doing a survey, an important part is calibrating your results to the population. So you can think of demographics such as sex, race, ethnicity, age, and education was important for the 2016 election, but a lot of state polls didn't include education. And what that means is making sure that the people in your survey accurately represent the population it's trying to measure. And if those numbers are off, you can do math magic to mm -hmm. make to adjust your results to make them match those population values. Okay. And this is pretty important because weirdly enough, demographics can be a strong indicator of who you're going to vote for. Yes. All right. I think I have a pretty good grasp on what polls are and the 2016 election. Is there anything else you want to talk about for 2016? Or are you ready to tell me about these secret Trump voters? Both of those things are all together. I was going to say, let's talk about the shy Trump supporter effect. Oh, man, I am so good at my job. <laughs> all right. So I mentioned it at the top of the episode that there's this theory of shy Trump supporters. Some people, particularly the Trump supporters and Trump himself, have said that the polls aren't accurate, that they're actually hidden Trump supporters, or as Trump said, a silent majority, the likes of which nobody has seen. So there is a theory that some people who participated in the polls didn't want to reveal that they supported Trump in 2016. So instead, they would say that they either supported Clinton or that they were like undecided or supporting someone else, but secretly they were supporting Trump. 
And this is actually a real effect that can happen in surveys. I will say, before I go into that, APOR found little evidence for that being the case in the 2016 election. And there was also a recent New York Times article that found little evidence of this effect happening in the 2020 election. But why I say that's a real effect that can happen in surveys is because sometimes in surveys, you can have this thing called a social desirability bias. And what that means is that asking someone a sensitive question sometimes they will give the more socially acceptable answer as opposed to what the true answer is. First of all, thank you for explaining that. I had no clue what the social, what was it? Social desirability bias. Social desirability bias was, but now that it has a name, I've seen that a lot of places where you think someone is going to vote a certain way or want to vote a certain way because they say that. But in reality, a survey isn't a vote because someone is literally standing there watching you give your response implies that there's going to be that feeling of judgment. Whereas when you go to cast your ballot in the United States, there's a high expectation that no one will ever know who you actually voted for. And that privacy allows you to vote what you feel without this weird sense of self-censorship. And that bias is hard to adjust for because how do you make someone feel private when they're giving a vote, especially so like you said, with phone call, Mm -hmm. phone call polling, like there's probably someone on the other end of that line who's hearing you say, I want to vote for Trump and being like, oh, do you? (laughs) Yes. And. Survey interviewers are trained to be really neutral because of that reason. Interviewer bias is a thing that can happen in surveys where the person giving the survey is unknowingly leading a person towards one response over another response. So people who give surveys are trained a lot on how to be neutral and how not to really react to things or how to ask questions in a certain way so that they're not getting a response out of the participant that isn't true. Yeah. So if I was going to ask, you would probably want to say something like, who are you going to vote for or not? Are you going to vote for Trump or are you going to vote for Biden? Yes, exactly. Okay, but how do I know that these secret voters aren't lying to us? (laughs) Well, a way to combat social desirability bias is really asking sensitive questions in a particular way. So as you mentioned, not being leading, that's just a good practice for survey questions in general. But something else you also hinted on is that sometimes the mode which you give a survey can have an impact. So Having a survey done over the phone when you have a person that's on the other end, a participant may be hesitant to give the true answer. And you can think of sensitive topics as like topics around sex or topics around income. You would be surprised. Income is probably the most sensitive question out there. Pick any other question. Income is the most sensitive one. Not how many sexual partners you have or your education (laughs) or who you're going to vote for in the next election. Yeah. Income is the one that people will skip the most. But as I mentioned about mode is that having something that's more private or you don't have the interviewer there, such as having an online survey or a paper survey or just one where there isn't a person present on the other end, that could potentially make the participant more at ease and answer truthfully and not the socially desirable answer. All right. But what about these secret Trump voters? I think that's a real question we all have minds. <laughs> well, yes. Let's go back to how I say APOR didn't find an effect of this. And that's because they studied all these different polls and were able to determine from studying all these polls that people were answering pretty truthfully or that it was coming out correctly. 
especially after adjusting for like education. Okay. So there are no secret Trump supporters and I was lied to. <laughs> sort of. Yes. Okay. It makes me glad to know that there probably aren't secret Trump supporters, but I'm still a little scared of, all right, am I going to find out after the votes are tallied that, haha, we tricked you again. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that because of what happened in 2016, polling places have had some lessons learned from it. I have a link to a 538 article that actually goes into the some of the changes pollsters have been doing because of the 2016 election. Mainly, it's now most of them are waiting by education, like they're accounting for education. And also, they're using different modes instead of those live phone calls. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, like web surveys or calling cell phones or texting, stuff like that. That's good to know. But I feel like I want to caveat all of this by saying the most important thing is not the polls. It's the votes, right? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you say you're going to vote for during a survey. We all need to go out and actually vote. Otherwise, it won't matter. Exactly. And I think sometimes people have an overconfidence in polls and they don't really understand what the point of them is. The point of a poll is to give a snapshot in time of what the public is thinking and to kind of have a prediction of what will happen in November. That doesn't mean that, oh, that's the decision. That's what's going to happen. And so you should just not vote. No, everyone, please go out and vote. Make your voice heard. People not voting, the polls are going to be useless. <laughs> like they're predicting nothing if no one goes out and votes. So I think that's a pretty awesome place to end. Please, everyone, do go vote. If you have a mail-in ballot, if you can vote early, any way you can vote, please do whatever you can to take the pressure off Election Day voters and also just to save yourself the time and headache knowing that you at least got your vote in, whoever you want to vote for. And Sam, if I wanted to, I don't know, maybe see the excellent sources that you kept alluding to throughout the episode, where would I go? <laughs> you would go to the show notes where I have all of them linked. Oh, man, I can't wait to read these tasty, tasty show notes. <laughs> and uh, if I want to share this excellent piece of content that encourages us to get out the vote and understand that as cool as polls are, at the end of the day, it's our democratic duty to represent our democracy. How could I share this information with my friends and colleagues and maybe even my enemies? Well, you can share this episode on social media. We have a Twitter at Sample Size Show. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms like, uh, I don't know, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast. You pick one. Yeah. And actually mentioning iTunes, why don't you guys go out and leave us a review or something? This is not a canned exit at all. <laughs> but regardless, please, whoever's listening, go vote. Tell your friends to vote. Tell your enemies to vote. Tell everyone to vote. Do your civic duty. Till then, we'll probably have another episode out before the election, but we'll see you on the other side. Bye. 